So, um, yes. my name's Thomas, and I'm the owner and the winemaker uh, for Fate Wines, um, but I'm also the sales manager for Bray Vineyards. Um, so I handle the um, the wine club and the tasting room, and I sell all the uh, bulk wine, so surplus wine that we uh, make but don't bottle. Uh, in the secondary market, I sell that out to uh, uh, other wineries who are doing other projects. I do all the grape contracts with people who purchase grapes from us, uh, uh, take care of the website, uh, program the uh, point of purchase system, decide what's on sale, uh, do online promotions, all of that fun stuff. Um, and But the real tie-in between the two brands is that all of the grapes that I use for Fate are exclusively from this same vineyard. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's do a little history on Bray. Uh, Bray was planted in 1996 by Robin and Oliver Bray. Um, and I was just barren land at that point. Uh, they got the uh, vineyard to maturity so that they could sell grapes. They sold grapes to the local grape uh, 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 wine community. Uh, and in 2004, they opened the winery. Uh, so very small production. Bray makes about 2,000 cases a year. Uh, I am ramping up to do about 1,000 cases a year. So um, you would consider us micro producers. 99% of our wine is sold right here at the winery. There's a little bit of uh, local restaurants and the one grocery store down the street carries some of the, the Bray wines. And that's it. Everything else here is wine club and direct to consumer, either online or uh, through the tasting room. But most of it's through the tasting room. Um, let's see. What else can I tell you? Uh, Bray grows 21 different varieties on 30 acres of planted vines. We also, it's a 50 acre property total. We also have... Um, 300 olive trees, uh, which are 15 different varieties, which we do have harvested and uh, cold pressed. And then we bottle it right here, sell it here in the winery. Excellent. Uh, all right. Uh, questions? Yeah, let's let's start with what we're drinking. First of all, it's it's Sunday morning. It's gorgeous out here in Almodar County. Uh, it's early November. It's just a gorgeous setting. Yeah, uh, And absolutely. we're drinking sparkling wine first thing in the morning. So Cheers. tell us a little bit about it. So this is uh, the, there are, that's funny because we actually did two sparkling wines from the same base wine. I made the base wine um, out of Sangiovese um, because I needed a, I wanted a blush. I wanted it to be light and bright. Um, and since we don't grow Pinot Noir in this region because it's too hot, the next lightest variety to work with was a uh, uh, Sangiovese. So we picked it really early at 18% sugar. So the acidity was very high and that we ended up with a wine base wine that had really high acidity, but the alcohol was only about 11%. And then we actually did two things. We bottled it for Bray, and we, we farmed it out to another producer who does the Charmat method of making sparkling wine, which is the way they make Prosecco, which is done in a large tank. Um, they add yeast and sugar, it does its thing, they seal the tank, the CO2 stays in the wine, they filter out the yeast, done, takes a couple weeks. This one that we're drinking right now is done in the traditional uh, method champenoise style. So the secondary fermentation is done individually in each bottle. Uh, it spends eight months uh, resting on the lees on the yeast cells um, before it's disgorged. And uh, we add a little bit of sugar and boom. So that takes about nine months. Um, so yeah, so light, bright, it's about 12 and percent alcohol. There's that little bit of yeasty characteristic on the nose. But it's not overpowering. But that's the real difference between champagne and, sh and the Charmat method is that uh, the bubbles are just a lot finer. They're a much smaller bubble. Um, there's more of them. And the, the uh, bubbles actually accentuate the acidity. So it tastes quite a lot drier than something that would be done the same method with the same amount of sugar in it. Well, it is, it is crisp. It is clean. 
It's got this really nice fresh fruit quality to it. It's bright Four. and brilliant for first thing in the morning. It's 40 case production. That's a lot. That's it. So, because I liked what happened, um, with this bottle we're doing 120 cases next year. So, well, we are, I, we, me. This is, uh, so just a quick background on how I do my wines. Um, for me, it's all about balance. So there's there's fruit, there's acid, there's alcohol, there's tannins, there's oak, there's all those things. And if any of it's kind of right here in your face, then it's not balanced. Um, and that's just based on my background is as a sommelier. Um, I'm a level two certified sommelier through quartermaster sommeliers. I did uh, the exams through uh, Society of Wine Educators and through um, the Colony Institute. So I'm not a chemist. I didn't go to UC Davis. Kind of learning the chemistry the hard way as I go along. Um, but I want to open one other one here. So this is currently the only not red wine that I'm making mm -hmm. except for dessert wine. Uh, questions while we're sipping? Uh, how did you fall into all of this other than uh, you worked as a small age, you said? Yeah, so, so my, my background is in fine dining. Um, started restaurant industry at 15, washing dishes, busboy, then a waiter, then a manager, owned a restaurant for a little while, don't ever do that. <laughs> don't ever do that. As, uh, as a culinary school grad myself, yeah. uh, I never wanted to open a restaurant, I wanted to consult and help other people there you go. theirs, so That's... that I could go home at the end of the night. Yeah, no, you, got, you end up being married to it, and yeah. it's, it's a, I mean, you can be very successful. We, we worked at, uh, both, actually Scarlett worked with we work together at Taste Restaurant, which is down here in, in Plymouth, yeah. which is where I was a sommelier most recently after I moved up from Santa Barbara. And um, they got it going on. They're farm to fork, all that good stuff. In fact, I'm doing a wine dinner there tonight. Nice. Um, but uh, uh, as far as the bug, I, when I, I, I'd been in the restaurant industry for you know a long time already. And at 29, I'm like, I want to learn how to do something else. So I got my first tasting room job at Santa Barbara Winery down in Santa Barbara, which is where I grew up. Um, and uh, that led to a job at a, a wine store, and then it was a really, really nice wine store that had about 2,500 labels. It was a great place to learn, and I was exposed to a lot of wine, and they let us sit in on the tastings when the sales reps would come to sell to the restaurant and to the wine store. So that's kind of where I got hooked. So you had a lot of spare time in the store. You read books. You go through the uh, wine store, which was arranged uh, regionally and geographically so that Northern Rhone was, was down here and you went all the way down to the Southern Rhone. It was very, very specifically set out. Um, and then from there I went into uh, distribution. I worked for a wine distribution company. Uh, then uh, became a private wine broker and all the time learning, learning, tasting, learning. I became a manager at a wine store uh, in Los Olivos, a Los Olivos wine merchant, uh, which was pretty only a couple years old then. It's now it's like 52 tasting rooms there or something crazy like that in Los Olivos. It's outrageous. Yeah. And it's only like three blocks long and two blocks wide. It's crazy. Um, let's see, what did I do after that? So after that, um, kind of worked in the restaurant industry the whole time just because it pays the bills. It, you can never leave. It's it never leaves you entirely. Yes. So um, that was, you know, always a good way to, to, to go. So five years ago, so let's go back seven and a half years ago, um, I left Santa Barbara. Just, it was just so expensive. I wanted to do a project like this there, but it just I didn't have the, there was, I didn't have any money because I live in Santa Barbara. Now my house payment's less than the rent was on my studio. <laughs> I have cool things like doors, and you know, I got, at 40 years old, I got tired of washing my dishes in the bathroom sink because I didn't have a kitchen. You know that that was very thin. Plus, I had family up here, so I, I moved up here. Um, two weeks after I moved up here, I, I started working at Taste Restaurant, and then I developed a 
a, a friendship with uh, John Hottie, who's the general manager here at Bray. He's a, a regular. Uh, he sits down at the bar. He's got kind of his own seat. And um, he wanted to do a blending project with the, with the restaurant and didn't really... The restaurant owner, Tracy, is the busiest woman in the world. And she didn't really have time. And I'm like, well, hey, I'll have to come check it out. And um, that led to my first uh, 100 cases of Tempranillo, which I bought barrels and blended it with some Grenache. Um, did that for a couple of years, added to Sangiovese, uh, then had enough capital to start buying grapes and start doing the process. And just it just kept going. And then uh, shortly after that, I, I started working here one day a week on Wednesday. Um, then, that, then I started running the wine club. And then just slowly took on more and more duties, started making suggestions on, you know, remodeling the tasting room, um, just, just, just small things, working on inventory management and all that. And then now, now I'm the sales manager and I handle all that stuff. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a long trip, but this part has been the most fun part. Um, and especially just, you know, making it your own. And, and that's kind of the reason it's called fate. It was a really long trip to get here. So it's something I always knew I wanted to do. Uh, so uh, we're, the next wine we're going to do, are we ready to do the next wine? We are. Yeah, please direct however you want, because if I just start talking, I won't stop. And we're, and we're good with that. We can okay. always split this into two or three episodes, depending on how much you like to talk. So, so next up, this is a uh, Tempranillo, so 2013. So I talked a little bit briefly earlier about balance and how you've got all those components. And you don't really, if, if anything is going to be the star of the show, it needs to be the fruit. Certainly not the oak. <laughs> you don't like trying to be controversial around here, aren't vanilla you? soup. I uh, as, yeah. uh, as uh, Lorenzo said yesterday. I like. Oh, were you a bananas? Lorenzo's awesome. <laughs> he was dressed as a farmer. Lorenzo's in, in, in Lorenzo's in Lorenzo's great. Yeah. Um, so um, this is a 2013 Tempranillo. Tempranillo, we're we're fortunate, just much like with Barbera and with uh, Zinfandel, is that Tempranillo grows really well in the foothills. And, and doesn't grow really well a lot of other places. So it's not a coastal grape. doesn't grow particularly well in Napa. You'll see some down in, in Paso, which has probably the closest climate uh, to ours of other areas in the state. This is a lighter style Tempranillo. That's a function of the vintage primarily. And I do a 15% addition of Grenache, which is very traditional in northern Spain, which is where both of those grapes come from. Actually, people think that Grenache comes from France, but it, it doesn't. But they have a cooler name for it there. It's called Garnacha. Isn't that cool? Garnacha. It just rolls off the tongue better than Garnacha. It's just more fun to say. I mean, and let's face it, wine needs a little more fun. Wow. <laughs> like, uh, we, this is what the podcast is all about. The hedonism of life and just being fun. Oh, yeah. and, not, and, and unpretentious, I should say. And not pretentious, but unpretentious. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm making 600, 700 cases a year total. Yeah. And if I can pay my bills on time and I get to keep doing this, then that's it. I win. That there really isn't you anything else. Life. There you go. So uh, there's a lot of rose petal wow. on the nose there. That there is. Um, it's got dark fruit, but it's not heavy. It's got some earthiness, but it's not tannic. So this is kind of really a versatile wine. It's really right in the middle of the road as far as, as structure, as far as fruit characteristic. So you could just have a glass of wine or you could you could food pair it as well. Maybe some not something real big, but certainly pork or fish, or especially if it's grilled. Or I mean, mm. pork or chicken, if, especially if it's grilled. Roasted vegetables would be work really, really nicely. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. So next up, we're gonna do a little Sangiovese. So Sangiovese's primary characteristics are bright cherry fruit and bright acidity, and this definitely has both of those. I also wanted to. Uh, oh, sorry, Leo. Nah, it's, it's, it's cork. Tis, it's, tis, tis, oh, it's cork. Yeah, it's 
not even a thing. Don't, don't worry about it. So bright cherry fruit, bright acidity, um, which is great. But sometimes Sangioveses can be a little thin. So I added 20% Primitivo to give it uh, some structure, a little earthy characteristic. So on the front of the palate, you're going to get kind of a burst of that big cherry fruit. And then they're going to get that big acidity. It's going to drive through. You're going to get a little bit of earthiness. And then the, the acidity is going to take over again. And the finish lasts for a long time. So pretty complex, really more of, I guess, what you'd call a super Tuscan style Sangiovese versus a Chianti style Sangiovese. And I like the color. It's pretty. Looks like jewelry. Did you say the vintage year? 13. Okay. So this is drinking now. No reason to wait. So on my, what I consider my production wines, which are my bigger lots, are the Sangiovese and Tempranillo or between 100 and 120 cases a year. I also do one which I'm sold out of, which is the Fusion, which is equal parts of Cabernet, Petit Syrah, and Zinfandel. I do approximately the same amount of that one. So those are kind of my three, you know, those are the ones that I sell wholesale to restaurants or stores. You know, not a whole lot of them, but there's, I've got a couple of accounts. And then the rest of my program is based on my reserve wines, which are all single barrel production. So single barrel production, of course, the disadvantage is, is there was only 24 cases in a barrel. The advantages are that you don't have to move the wine around a lot. So there's not a lot of exposure to oxygen in the blending process. So let's say I'm going to blend those six barrels of wine together. I got to take them all out of the barrels, put them all into a big tank. They get splashed around. There's hoses and pumps and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, it, wine doesn't like that. It likes to hold still. Um, secondly, when the blending's all done, you got to put it all back and that's fine. But then when it's time for bottling, you got to put it all back in one big tank and it's pumps and hoses and filters and it's exposed to oxygen and all that stuff. So single barrel production is great because it gets a lot less of that, if not, none of it, some, some of it. So the, uh, uh, this is a Petit Syrah. I blended it with 5% Alicante Boucher uh, for color and mostly just, I like the color, and just to pull a little bit of the tannin structure down. Because petites, if they're too aggressive, then you can't taste the rest of the wine if the tannin structure doesn't doesn't dissipate. So I took uh, five gallons out, put five gallons of the uh, Alicante in there, did some other small changes with acidity and things like that, just real small micro changes, but it all stays in one container. What I can do with that that I can't do with these is that this, consequently, this one's hand bottled. It's not mm -hmm. filtered. It's not fined. It's all gravity fed. We lift the barrel up on the forklift, put a hose in it, <laughs> siphon it into the manual bottle filler, use the, the floor corker and I literally put the labels on these in the morning before people get here um, it goes out to the wine club first my massive wine club of 40 people right. <clears throat> well it's limited to 50 <clears throat> there's five spots left and um, so what you get where that really where the difference really is is on the finish so if I was to mm -hmm. bottle this petite straw on the bottling truck all of that action would uh, would bust up those tannins into a whole bunch of more tannins so the wine, the tannin structure would be really aggressive. And so the finish wouldn't be very pleasant um, for a couple of years. It takes a long time for those amino acid chains and the tannins to link back up together so that they're not so, so uh, in your face. And so that's the function of the balance. So, and again, the color, there's a saying in the food industry that translates to the wine industry, which is you taste with your eyes first. So when you see that really rich, dark, almost squid ink kind of color, um, you're starting to formulate an idea in your head of what that wine's going to taste like. And uh, the trick is to be able to back it up and make sure that it kind of goes along the same lines. If this tasted this wine and it was really thin and there was no tannin structure, then you'd be pretty disappointed. Um, but 
Fortunately, that's not the case. And this is the perfect time for this time of kind of wine. It's starting to get chilly. The time's changed. It's time for some short ribs and, or some, you know, grilled ribeye. Something with some fat contact to, to work with those tannins. If you start with sound wine, you're going to end up with sound wine. But it's never, the nuances aren't always the same. And you always use a you, you always lose a little bit of character when you when you bottle with a filter. So that's, that's a thing. So um, this wine... This one's cool, uh, but I do have to confess that I didn't make it. I bought it from Bray, so it, this was a single barrel that uh, Puel Medina, who's the winemaker for Bray, uh, made. It was kind of his pet project. Uh, it was a single barrel uh, sitting. I found it, though. I found it. That's, that's, I'll take credit for that. Uh, it was in that room in the back corner, kind of hidden away. I think it would have been forgotten about. And what it is is, I guess it's somewhere in between what you would call a white port or a Madeira. It's 50% Viognier. 50% Verdello, which is, uh, it has got a little tiny bit of oxidation on it on purpose. Uh, what makes this wine uh, really interesting is that the time that it spent in the barrel. It spent eight years in the barrel before we bottled it. So just like we were talking about scotch or with cognac, which is basically, it's, this is fortified with 190 proof brandy. The longer it stays in the barrel, the physiological process of it aging in the barrel makes that alcohol really round really delicate really elegant whereas um, one that we bottled just a couple months ago I, we made four more barrels of this this year because there was no more in the pipeline well it doesn't taste like that right now and it's not going to for quite a long time uh, so what this is is it's just real essences of heavy honey um, uh, agave nectar which is why i called it nectar um, and it's just a it's a, just a, a fantastic dessert wine it's got that little hint of apricot my sister was here helping me pour for an event a couple weeks ago and she came up with the idea that it would be great uh, on Belgian waffles with peaches and ice cream and just use this as the syrup instead of maple syrup and I, we got to try that out soon because I literally have two cases left <laughs> I Huge fan of dessert wines. Mm -hmm. Huge Sauternes fan. Huge Port and Madeira fan. Sure. I, I've been looking, uh, tracking this uh, this hotel that's for sale in Funchal, and I've been dying to buy it as my retirement. Uh, you know, it's, you know, oh, awesome. a hotel right there in Madeira. You know, sure. I could drink. You know, eighteen seventies. You could just you know, yeah, all day. Exactly. Just get enough on the lips so you can just taste it. Yeah. Um, and what I what I love about this is that it's not cloying or sweet. Mm -mm. And you nailed a balance that is very very. Hard. I don't want to say it's hard to do, but many people don't do it. Here's, here's one of the things that Hoel does when he makes his dessert wines, which is exceedingly simple, but nobody seems to do it. He only fortifies to 18%. Exactly. And so what that does is it takes that hot alcohol characteristic out of the nose and off the palate. Now, if, if it's brand new, like I said, we just actually here, let me... I'm gonna go. I'm gonna don't go do, do something. It. You this don't way. have to. I can't. Oh, no. You don't have to. I can't do it. <laughs> Let me see if I can find something real quick and I'll show you an example of what I'm talking about. Sure. Another dish that I actually just started making was um, brie cheese, fig jam, puff wrapped in fuck, uh, puff pastry. We had it last Sunday. Oh yeah, and then I would pour the, the fig dish. jam, and I reduce this by half and pour this right over. So good. I apologize. Um, Thursday for Chapelet? Chapelet? Sure. Um, that sounds amazing. Yeah. I um, could just put that over pancakes. 
I want waffles. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, oh, yeah. I want pancakes. Yeah, where are the waffles? <laughs> I, was, I, want, I want waffles. I was promised a waffle bar. I was promised a waffle bar. Kind of hold it in. Yeah. I usually just go pancake. So, anyways, those are all of the goodies back here. And then we can go up here and talk and taste some bread wines as well. Yeah, let's see. There's some great stuff going on up there also. Um, um, you're going to have to finish that. I'm trying to feast myself. I know. <laughs> I didn't do it. I, didn't I, I know somebody who will drink I'm it. I'm like, I'll finish it if you want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I do not mind. 